nothing like blowing a five-point lead, isn't there? I'm going to hit you where it hurts this morning, so I thought I'd start with baseball, right? I'm not a big baseball fan, never really have been. I enjoy it. I get into this time of year because that means it's the end of baseball soon. Um, it's just, it's too slow for me. I'd rather watch golf at all. But I, I can't help but appreciate sports for a lot of reasons. One, because uh, our culture seems to be um, connected and wrapped up in sports. And I can always pull a metaphor out of there. They provide such great content for me uh, for, for, for sermons because what you see is uh, in the crowd and the spectators amongst the people, the fanatics, if you will, the fans, if you will, of sports, they just exemplify the, the, uh, the, the ends of humanity, right? The, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, as we have heard in the past. Many of us are a little bit older who remember these songs when they first came out, which I like them, by the way. I was just reminded this morning how much older they are, and I'm like, dude, let's let's get the Heavenly Highway hymnal up here next. And let, y'all remember that? Some of y'all remember that? Okay, I'm I'm, I'm dating myself for sure. Five point lead, we've got this. Let's keep a 39 year old pitching. Why not? A couple of runs here, a couple of runs there. Pull the 39 year old. Bring in the 26 year old. Always a younger model, faster, quicker, well-rested, lose the game six to five. Pride's something, isn't it? I mean, it's something. We got this. Let's just ride this one out. We're going to be just fine. We have done everything right to win this game. We've got this. That's actually a pretty common phrase these days. We've got this. And, and, and when you hear it, it's almost like there's a collectiveness, there's a communal ideal of this, that we're together in this. But, but I think there's another piece that we kind of miss out sometimes to say, I have full control of the outcome. And together we have full control of the outcome. So therefore we need not trust upon anyone else because we've got this. Pride, pride is a scary thing. It's, it's, in my opinion, one of the deadliest attitudes of sin that any of us could ever adopt because when pride creeps in and it does very subtly sometimes it's consumed you before you realize what's happened and pride has opened you up to a variety of challenges has has created doorways and pathways to do you harm and do harm to those around you in so many ways and you don't even see it until it's too late now, many of you know that we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. We've taken a painstakingly long time to go through Jeremiah. We do find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 49 this morning. And, and what we see from Jeremiah 46 through 51, we kind of see a, a little a snapshot of, of the whole book of God saying, I'm going to declare judgment upon my people, but I'm also going to declare judgment upon the Gentile nations around Israel for how they've treated my people. And for how they have turned their back on me, having heard about me from my people. And so we get to a place in chapter 49 where we're starting to, to look at a couple of the, the remaining Gentile nations around the Jewish place of Israel. The nation itself. So you have Edom and, and Elam and, and, and you have uh, uh, the Ammonites and you have a, a group of nomadic people running through there. And throughout the entire chapter 49, you see the word pride is mentioned six times in there against all of these different nations. 
and, and God is, is just declaring it is your pride that has got you to a place that mandates my judgment. It is your pride that gets you to a place that you don't understand my judgment and my discipline. What we see through the book of Jeremiah is the twofold prophecy of the near prophecy for the people of the day and the far prophecy of what is to come for God's people when he returns a second time. And, and we, we actually can pick that up from Jeremiah. We can see it continue to unfold through Daniel and then into the Revelation at the very end of the Bible. We see the second part of the long prophecy. But the first part gives us an opportunity to see that God is not joking. He's not kidding about these things, that he means what he says to do. Even if you will repent, he means to forgive you. And when you will not, he means to punish that behavior because his justice requires that for him to be who he is. We don't need a wishy-washy God. We need a God who does what he says he's going to do. Because when we can count on him to do what he says he's going to do when it comes to discipline, we can count on him to do what he says he's going to do in terms of reward. That's a God that's trustworthy, that's not wishy-washy and back and forth. But throughout the Bible, we've seen multiple, 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 multiple examples of the, the pride of humanity where God has called out to them and said, hey, stop this, get over yourself, get past you and listen to me and everything will be fine. But if you are so bent on doing it your way, you're going to fail. Noah is one of those great stories of that. Some dude starts building the boat, telling him that water's going to fall from the sky, and everybody laughs at him. <laughs> Water from the sky? Are you kidding me? That's never happened before. We've got this. I loved Bill Cosby's version of that when he would ding the little bell and ask Noah, how long can you tread water? Right. Prideful people all perished, all but eight of them. Lot and his son-in-laws, when Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot was declaring to them that God was going to come and bring judgment, we need to leave, take my daughters, let's take my wife, let's get out of town, because Abraham has negotiated a truce for us. And the sons-in-laws of Lot said, no, God's not going to do that. That's not who God is. He doesn't act that way. Why don't you send those angels out so we could have our way with them? We've got this. The Egyptians believed that their Pharaoh was greater than any God that these oppressed people who were building bricks for them could ever be. Oh, our magicians can turn rods into snakes too. Our magicians can cause things to go dark too. Our magicians can do all these things until there was crying in Egypt the night that the the, 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 the angel of the Lord passed over and the first of all of Egypt died. No, no, we've got this. We've got this. Jonah was told to go and declare to the Ninevites, who would be part of this group, by the way, that God is saying, I called to you, you answered me, and now you're turned your back, back to those foreign gods again, and I'm going to deal with you again, this time completely. Just imagine Jonah walking through going, <laughs> 40 days, I'm sticking. Got me a seat picked out here in the desert to take a look at this. God's coming. And then the king of Nineveh does something that Jonah did not expect. We, we ain't got this. 
We should trust in the, in the Lord on this. Time after time after time, we see this pride well up through biblical history, through the history of humanity, even today when we declare we've got this and we don't. Pride exposes a lot about who we are, about our character, about what we believe, what we're truly invested in, about the things that we value most, that we would give our time, our talents, our, our dollars, our, our everything to. Even when we know we're wrong, a prideful person will put everything on the line because of pride. This morning, if you're taking any notes, I would just challenge you with this statement here, that few people consider the true cost of Christ until they see it. And it doesn't matter how many examples we have in this book or in the Encyclopedia Britannica or in Wikipedia or whatever you use to look at history. It does not matter. Pride is one of those things that man just continues, continues to stumble with. Now, I don't want to elevate the enemy, a real creature called Satan who has fallen from heaven and is wreaking havoc on this world. But I'll tell you this, there is no need for him to get creative because the same things that always work still work. And it's not because he's that good. It's because humanity refuses to change. And we cannot change on our own. We must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that means we've got to put the good stuff in. And that's the truth of the God of the Bible. We can try to stop this and kick this habit and do these different things. But at the end of the day, we need to be transformed by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Something we cannot do on our own. We don't have this. He does. Many people, pride just consumes them. And so as we look at Jeremiah chapter 49 this morning, I want to show you a couple of examples of these, these Gentile people that God is calling out and saying, here's what's going to happen to you. And here's where pride is going to not let you get out of this because you just can't change your mind. It's not that God has completely declared it to be so, which he has, but what he said is, I declare it to be so because you guys aren't going to change your mind. And so because you've doubled down on this and decided we're going we're gonna to do this anyway, this is the outcome. And so when we look at, at Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 4 and 5, he's speaking to the Ammonites. And, and the Ammonites have been jacking with the Israelites for decades, for hundreds of years. And he says, why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord of hosts, from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. If, if you know geography at all or look at the maps in the back of your Bible, what you'll often find are there, there's, the, there's a lot of valleys through here. And you'll see that in the Old Testament, the Valley of Elah, the Valley of this, the Valley of what. You'll see these valleys, and most of these valleys point back in towards Jerusalem. And whoever controls the valley controls the trade route that go from the sea or go to Jerusalem or go down into Joppa or go down to the, to the uh, 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 Egyptian peninsula or go north. And so whoever controls the valley controls traffic. And when they control traffic, they control the strategic places. And, and so the Ammonites have some control over one of these valleys. And this is God saying, you don't have this. I let you be there. You don't know that. You haven't accepted that. But I let you be there. And in the midst of you being there, you have imposed terrible things upon my people. You've taken advantage of them when they were suffering and they were starving and they were, they were dying of starvation and the famine was coming through. And all. You took advantage of them. And I, I, 
I've had enough. I'm going to deal with you. And so you can take all the treasures you want and all the faith you have in your valley, but I'm telling you, you have a false sense of security and your pride is just walking you into my plan. You see, it, it's, it's humility that actually gets us to the cross of Jesus. It's pride that nailed him to it. And this is what he says to the Ammonites. Is you have a false sense of security, and part of that false sense of security is that you look back and you go, look what I've been able to accomplish without God. I don't need him. I've got this. It is not hard for us to get to that place, but I think what's even more challenging is when we get to that place of boasting of not needing the Lord. I think it's even more dangerous, and I think that's when our hearts become really hard, and God says, no, 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 I'm going to carry out my plan not because I'm cruel, not because I'm merciless, but because I told you how things were going to go. You didn't listen to that. You doubled down on your plan and you moved forward and you trusted in your own abilities and your own understanding and your pride had given you a false sense of security. He moves on to Edom and Edom would be the, the, the tribe that actually came from Esau who was one of the two twin brothers whose other brother was Jacob whose name would be changed to Israel. And Israel would be the chosen people. Esau should have been the brother who received all the birthright, but yet he sold it for a bowl of soup one day. And then his brother tricked their father Isaac, who was the one who was supposed to be sacrificed on the mountain by, by, by his, his father Abraham, because God had a plan the whole time for these things to work out. And every one of these men tried to get around God's plan or get to a point to go, no, no, I've got this. And every time they failed and God had to bring them back around and it was his mercy that did so, but it was his mercy that came through judgment to bring them back around and say, you, you don't have this, right? You are fooling yourselves. And, and, and the Edomites, again, wreaked havoc upon the people. At one time, Jacob and Esau actually did meet up and they hugged and they embraced after many years. Jacob was actually afraid of his brother and they embraced and after many years and they got to a place to say, you know what? God has multiplied all of our properties and our lands and our herds, and, and we probably should still go our separate ways. And I, I think there's a lot going on there, too. And as time went on and time went on and time went on, you still got two brothers who didn't fully reconcile, and all their kinsmen that came from them didn't fully reconcile. And then you've got the, these Edomites that are remembering, you know what, we were the firstborn child, and maybe we deserve more than what we are getting. We should go and take this. And they just kept on messing with the people. And so they actually put uh, uh, their home in the cleft of the rock. And, and you may know this place that we call modern-day Petra. And Petra was this fortified rock city. There's a hard way in. There's this nice little carved-out building, and all the other buildings are carved out there. And not only was it a good fortified city, it was a banking place. And many of the other nations would actually hide their wealth in Petra for a fee, of course, because that's how banks work. And, and they thought this was a safe place. And the Edomites could say, no, no, we got this. We're the most fortified, strongest place. And look what he says in, in verse 7 of chapter 49. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon you the time when I punish you. I mentioned this last week that you can run, but you cannot hide. You can go back to your fortified cities. You can go back to your city in the rock. You can go back to the, to the bottleneck of just one place is uh, where, where only one place can get in, where the armies really can't come in there. You can go back. You can trust in all those things. But what you're really doing is revealing your ignorance. 
because for a long time the Edomites were thought to be these wise people, these great soothsayers, because they had stumbled upon a way to protect themselves so much, in fact, that people would align themselves with them to protect their wealth. And everybody thought these were just smart, wise people. And in the midst of their pride, they went back to that rock, the wrong rock, by the way, and God exposed their ignorance. So much that he, uh, he uses this play on, on words to say, is wisdom no more here? Like, what you're calling wisdom, I'm calling a death sentence. What you say, we've got this, God's saying, no, you don't have this. But just because you think you do, I'm going to let you keep thinking that. I'm done changing your mind. You know, we don't often like to think that God does that or that he goes that way, that he, he gets to a place to go, enough's enough. Because we, we want this God, who, who's not the God of the Bible, by the way, to be this just constant second chance and constant all the time, and I could just live however I want and not worry about that. And it's pride that actually does that. And sometimes it's pride in a salvation that we don't firmly have a grasp on. It's just, I am saved. I can do anything I want. I can live any way that I want. And God goes, no, you can't do that. Not only can't you do that, you shouldn't want to do that. And the more you get to know me, the less you want to not live that way and think that your pride has saved you and will continue to do so. Instead, your ignorance is revealed in your pride. There's no place safe once the Lord has set his sights on you. And that should both scare us and excite us a little bit. I mean, just think for a moment. The one who knows all, sees all, is all, and is everywhere pursues after us. And he doesn't begin to pursue us for harm. He pursues after us to stop us. Bridge out ahead. There is a funny story of a, of a church that was on a road where the bridge was out, and they put a sign up that says, turn around, the end is near. The guy comes driving by, and he sees a sign, he sees a pastor change the letters out there, and he hits the brake, and he hollers out the window, you hypocritical Christian churches, tell us about gloom and doom and everything else. And I mean, next thing you know, you hear tires screech and... A crash. And he turns to his associate pastor and says, maybe we should have just put bridge out ahead. You know? Your pride reveals your ignorance. No matter how smart you think you are, when you get to the place to go, I've got this, I don't need God, I don't need to trust in God, or even worse, I just don't even think about God anymore, it's going to get revealed in you. Look with me in verse 16, what's next? Because pride also makes us vulnerable. And I think sometimes this is where we get 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And whether we're a believer and we're making bad decisions or whether we're a non-believer and we're still making bad decisions, a little of what I spoke about last week is you got away with it in the past. You know, nobody caught up to you. Nobody mentioned it this time or somebody excused it or whatever. But when you get to a place where pride makes us vulnerable, and it says in verse 16, it says, the horror you inspire has deceived you. And the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hills, though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. And he says, all this time that you've made a name for yourself by being so smart, being so wise, and, and being so strong, and being the, this banking center for all these other pagan people who don't worship me but chase after all these other gods, your pride has made you actually vulnerable because I know exactly where to strike. I know the one place where you're going to hurt the most, and that's your security, and that's your safety. And I don't know about you, friends, but that today is where a lot of us are. 
I can't stand election season. It's worse than all the rest of the season. But I can't stand election season because of the ads and the text messages. I don't know which one of you put me on these lists, but I'm sorry. I don't know what I did to you, but, but please don't give my phone number out to whoever's texting me, asking me to vote for all these things. I can't, I can't stand that. I can't stand to watch the ads of them just tearing each other down and tearing each other down because all I know is what you're against. I don't know what you're for. These people, unfortunately, they were for themselves and themselves only. And God got to a place to say, you know what? I was for you up to the point to where you had had this. And now I'm against you. And that's not going to change. We get vulnerable sometimes because our pride gets the better of us. We stay in a couple of extra innings when we probably should have pulled ourselves out. We try to help the team out because we're the only one who can. And at the end of the day, what we see is you can't pitch six innings. I know that's a bad metaphor, and I'm going to milk it for all it's worth because come November, we'll be talking about something else, right? Pride makes us vulnerable. You know, the other thing that we see sometimes and this is when I know that few people consider the true cost of, of, of pride until it's too late. It's because the innocent often pay the price of pride. They're in every skirmish, in every war, in every battle, whether that be two countries declaring war against one another, whether it be two gangs in the street, the innocent always get caught in the crossfire. They always, and by what I mean innocent, are the ones who didn't start this mess, Right? Because I'll be perfectly clear with you, none of us are innocent, not one of us. It is through the blood of Jesus that we are washed away and our sins are forgiven. But on our own, we are not innocent. We are guilty. And we are guilty uh, uh, and worthy of a death that Jesus would take for us. But, but when we talk about how armies and battles and differences of opinions, I mean, you ever been in public when a fight breaks out? It's always the people in the middle that really get harmed. Many, many years ago, I ended a police chase. The car hit me that they were chasing. They pull a guy through the windshield. I keep driving a little bit. The police officer asks me, why'd you keep driving? I'm like, dude, I got stray bullet written all over me. I, I'm the guy that, that's going to get out of the way to get out of the way, and I'm going to get shot. Because the innocent always pay the true cost of pride. Right now in Ukraine, man, I got to tell you something. There are a lot of people who are paying the price for the pride of two nations. Now, I, I'm going to blame Putin for a lot of this, but the pride of two nations because you keep on fighting, you keep on fighting, and I get it, I understand, but it's the people in the middle who are suffering for it. Our border issues right now in these United States, I can't stand that we've got such an issue. I don't like the humanitarian problem that we have, but when it comes to women and children, the innocent, they're caught right in the middle of this. And it's pride that's doing so. It's pride in their nations. It's pride in our nations that's doing so. It's pride in our two political parties that is putting humanitarian need that's harming the innocent. I really don't care where you are on that politically. I've got my own opinions on that. But I cannot lie to you and tell you that there aren't innocent people who are suffering because of that. It happens every time. All of those European nations, when Germany marched through, and when the, the Axis powers would come through versus the Allied powers, it was always those in the middle who suffered the most. Look with me in verse 10 and 11 of Jeremiah 49. But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places. 
he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will, I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. At this point in chapter 49, it's not just uh, Jeremiah speaking. It's actually the Lord speaking. There's almost a dialogue between the people and the Lord that's happening here. And he's saying, listen, I understand that the pride of leadership is going to hurt the everyday folk. And they're going to be in the middle of that. And we're going to have orphans and we're going to have widows. Leave them to me. I'll take care of them because you didn't. Because you put your pride first and put them in such a place that they needed help from a protector. And the only protector good enough, strong enough, is the Lord God himself. Leave them to me. But know this, that if your pride continues to push you to do this, to not repent of your sins and not turn back to me, innocent people are going to suffer for this. Every time it happens. Every time. Pride is not just an individual thing. It impacts us all. Finally, I want to share with you this morning that pride deceives us deceives us. And this is where I'd like to spend just a little bit of time this morning looking at Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 12. It's an interesting little sentence in the middle of this chapter here, in the top third of the chapter. And it says, for thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. I want to give you a little bit of historical context here. I'm going to answer a question here in a moment that I'm going to ask ask of you. But what he's saying here at this point is he's talking to all these Gentile nations who might be thinking, well, I don't fully know your religion. I don't fully know your God. I don't have all these other things. Why should I have to suffer for what I don't know? And God answers very clearly to them, says, my people did know and they suffered. They were punished for what they did know and what they did do. Why would they go unpunished and why would I let you go unpunished too? In a prideful state of mind, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, okay, well, how come they get, a, get away with this and I don't? How come the rules are different for them than what it is for me? How come the, the wicked prosper? How come uh, the, the, the rich continue to do this? How come the, the evil people, how come all this other stuff? And we don't stop and look for a moment and go, hey, wait a minute, what about my personal relationship with God? Where am I? I'm, I'm busy focusing on what God's not doing to them and I'm missing out on what I am doing to God what I'm missing with him. And so pride has deceived me in such a way to think that either one, I'm going to get away with it because God's letting them get away with it. And some sort of equity in there says that if God does this for them, he has to do it for me. That's not how it works. Let me tell you what God did for them that he also did for you. He sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. That's all that's owed of any of us. If he wants to let them get away with bank robbery and murder and everything else, that's God's prerogative, but I promise you it'll catch up to them. And it has nothing to do with you because vengeance is his. It belongs to him, thus saith the Lord. It has nothing to do with you. And if you build your moral compass or your sets of rules or how you live your life based upon what God does not do for other people, I would encourage you to keep examining what God does not do to them when they really mess up and hope he doesn't do it to you because you deserve way more than that. It deceives us into this false sense of saying that there's a, there's a different set of rules. And what God's really saying is, look, I chose Israel to be my chosen people, to be a light unto all of you Gentile nations around here, Edom, Elam, uh, 
the, the Karazites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all these people. I chose them to be a light to you of all these people, and they weren't, but you still knew because many of you even responded with, you know, the reason you're being punished there, Jerusalem, the reason why you're being punished is because you sinned against your God, and even we know you did that. And God said, you're right, they did. And if they didn't go unpunished, what makes you think you're going to go unpunished? But he says something else right there in that verse 2. And he speaks of the, the, the cup that must be drank or drunk. But he's going to have a grammar hammer anyway. He says the cup that, that, that was poured out, somebody's going to have to drink that. And what we see in this cup is the cup of God's wrath. And the cup of wrath is mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament and a few times in the New Testament. We're going to get there in a minute. But, but I want to answer for us this morning and tell us this of, of how do we fix pride. The only cure for pride is humility. That's it. Now, that's a, that's a big absolute statement, and I get that. And that may be creating some tension for some of you. I don't care. Because what I want you to see is that in humility, we position ourselves to learn. In humility, we can look back at the past and go, I don't want to do what they did and, 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 and hope for different results because God didn't change, so the results really aren't going to change either. But what we see is that, that, that the only cure for pride being humility, so therefore no one's sins will be ignored. If he's going to punish Israel, he's going to punish everybody. He actually said to Jeremiah earlier in Jeremiah 25, verse 15 and 16, he says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, being Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. The only cure is pride. The only cure is pride. That's it. When Jeremiah went not just to his people, he went to all the nations, and God said, go and tell them the truth about me, because if my people aren't going to listen, the rest of the world is going to need to hear the truth, because I am the only way to salvation. And he says, Jeremiah forced them to drink this. And what he was saying in context to them is tell them the truth of judgment that's coming because unrepentant hearts are going to be dealt with. The next thing we can see as far as curing pride with humility is to see that judgment starts with us. And by us, what I mean are those who believe in the household of God. Peter treats this probably better than anybody else to say that, that, that we have got to humble ourselves in such a way and stop thinking that we have this and realize that God has this. And i got to go back to a baseball metaphor for just a minute because this actually really bothered me. It's not as bad as the Christmas time uh, uh, ASPCA commercials. Those really bother me too, but, but, but I'll get there in a couple weeks, okay? But, but this one was that the, uh, I think it was Texas Southern Choir uh, sang this promo for the, the baseball game the other night, and they were singing, he's got the whole world in his hands, and they're talking about baseball players. And I'm like, man, this is messed up. Like my skin crawls a little bit when we do that, right? Be because they start singing Silent Night with the ASPCA to get you to give money to save dogs. And look, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a big animal fan, but, but that, that crosses the line for me. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually. It crosses the line for me. But when you see a, a baseball player, the idols of our day, and you say he's got the whole world in his hands, that's messed up. And I know there are some that are saying, well, isn't that nice if they sang a, a Bible song on national television? No, 
not. There's no salvation in baseball. There's nothing. You made it safe at home. <laughs> if you stole it, I mean, come on, I can go all day with it. Judgment starts with us, friends, and we've got to look at these things. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, consider that for just a moment. Those of us who have proclaimed Christianity, who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on a cross for us, that he rose three days later, if God is not going to judge us, then he's not going to judge other people. But if he starts with us and he judges our hearts and he's called us his first fruits, as we talked about in our adult Sunday school class this morning, and he's brought us together to be a beacon and a light to the nations, just as he did Jeremiah and every one of us, then his judgment must start with us and we must be humble and receive the judgment of God so that others might see that yes, he can be a wrathful God if you make him to have to be, but he can also be a loving, caring, merciful God when you submit to him and say, you know what, I don't have this. I messed up. That's on me. God, I'm sorry. And it starts with us. But when the church refuses to be disciplined by a loving God for the truth of his word, I'm going to tell you the rest of society has no hope, and that's on us. And that's when we can say, we got this. We're responsible for what's happening in our culture and our society today. Because we're not following him, we're letting a lot of things happen, not outside of our control, but inside of our control. Judgment starts with us. That's why we must be humble. If you did it, you did it. It was me. I'm sorry. I don't ever want to do that again. Leads me to the third thing, that repentance truly changes everything. The interesting thing about one of the longest books in the entire Bible being Jeremiah is how many times he speaks of repentance over and over and over and over and over again. And how many times they don't do it. And how many times God says, this is what's going to happen if you don't. Isaiah would be one of those contemporaries of the major prophets. He would say in Isaiah 51, 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. I want to take note that by Isaiah 51, God has already declared all of these other things that were going to happen. He begins actually saying that I'm going to send to you one that's going to be the savior of all mankind. He, he says, who's going to go and tell my people about the redemption that's going to come from my hand? Who's going to go and tell all the nations that it doesn't have to end this way? It doesn't have to be negative. Jeremiah says, here my Lord, or excuse me, Isaiah says, here my Lord, send me. By the time we get to Isaiah chapter 51, God has said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. For those who repent, who turn their hearts back to me, I'm going to take that cup of wrath away from them. But I'll remind you what was said in Jeremiah 49. The cup's been poured. Somebody's going to have to drink it. Somebody's going to have to drink it. Now, this redemption that Isaiah speaks of and that even Jeremiah would speak of in the long-term prophecy would be Jesus Christ. And that's why we get to the, to the final part here where I can tell you confidently that Jesus says, I'll drink that for you. There's no reason for you to do that. I'll do it for you. Christ himself, on the night before he was crucified, went to the garden to pray. He took three of his friends with him and asked them to pray and to keep watch. And he kept going back and forth with them, and he found them asleep. And he says, you can't even stay awake for an hour. And he says, and after 
going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, that's humility. That Jesus would leave the comforts of heaven and come to earth. That he would humble himself even to the point of a servant and come to this earth so that he might drink the cup of wrath so that we don't have to. That's the, that's the current near prophecy for each of us, and that's the far prophecy when he returns. He would say this at the Passover dinner, but he would talk of the cup that he was going to drink. And I don't think any of the disciples understood that. But Jesus knew all full well that he would become sin who knew no sin. He would take on the sin of the world. And it's as if in this picture of him drinking the cup of wrath that he is ingesting all of our evil, including and especially our pride, and saying that I will not be so prideful that I will claim myself the son of God. In fact, I will lay myself down only to pick myself up again for you. dangerous it consumes us and before we know what's hit us we're wrapped up in the middle of it we've doubled down and it has become a part of our of our of our identity it's who we are as prideful people we get shamed and we don't want anybody to continue to do that when was the last time you watched somebody just stop and go you know what that's me i did that i shouldn't have done that i should have said that i shouldn't have gone there I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that was me and it's not feigned it's just humility saying I messed up and how many times over and over and over again do we watch people go I did it and I'm proud of it I did it again here's the good news for us this morning friends Jesus only had to die consider that he might want to do it again because I know he doesn't have to I know that once is enough once is far more than what we deserve and he did so not out of pride when you read some of the rest of the gospels even perhaps maybe in the Nicene Creed or or in some of the Catholic traditions you get this ideal that, that Jesus descended into the earth it says at his death there's a lot of speculation as to what that is. Some would say that he would go and he would, he would preach to the captives in hell and give them opportunity. I don't believe that to be true. What I think he did was he went to those who had died before and he says, I told you. He didn't do it pridefully. He went and he says, I told you that there was a way and I was it. And I'm demonstrating to you that I have power over death like I always said that I did doing that because I want humanity to be with me forever at the pinnacle of all creation and say, you know what? They don't have this. I do. I do. Jeremiah has been a challenging book for me. We've got a couple more weeks left in this. But I think perhaps the most challenging part of all of these things is the exposition that it does on humanity itself. It peels back the layers and shows me in the pages of, these, of this book that that's me. Prideful as I am, arrogant, pompous, sometimes living in a shame culture of my own where I'm going to double down and stay in there and I'm going to keep fighting. 
We've all been there. We've all done things like that. I think we could all probably agree, too, that as we do that, our relationships erode with other people because our pride starts to break down trust with other people. More than anything else, I think what pride really reveals to us is that we have more faith in ourselves than we do in a loving God who is the conqueror of death, hell, and the grave. morning I want to invite you to swallow your pride maybe identify those things in your life that say you know what I put this before God or I make this a bigger deal or I don't trust God in these ways maybe that's a matter of self-examination that you kind of got to look and go you know I'm, I'm prideful I never really thought it was that big of a deal but man it has left me vulnerable it has left me to, to hurt some relationships you know the innocent around me have suffered because of my pride less self-consumed and a lot more his because he's got it all. Will you pray with me this morning?